Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to you, dear listeners. Welcome to Floaters, where I talk to people whose upbringings only constant was travel and change, with more attachments to luggage than bedrooms. My name is Sophia. I enjoy eating Kinder chocolate, the colour red, and watching unhealthy amounts of reality TV. Who's with me? Big up, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. On to today's episode. My guest today is the founder of the Global Nomad Co. She's a warm soul and dutiful cat parent. It's Nora Rushdie. Nora and I, we connected over Instagram and she is part of a community of TCKs who are using their experience and creating something really beautiful out of it. And it was marvellous meeting her over the interwebs. I can't wait for you all to meet her right now. So, um... Oh, I also want to tell you our whole conversation. Oh my God, Norma's cradling her injured kitten. And this kitten, oh my God, it was so cute. I swear it could suck all the sourness out of a bitter lemon. So cute, it could melt ice. It was absolutely adorable. I think she's doing better now, the kitten, just in case you're worried. Um, but uh, I just want to let you know that that's what I was staring at this whole conversation. It was so adorable. Anyway, on to the episode. Take it away, Noor. So this is the classic long-winded TCK uh, introduction. So um, I was born in Beijing, in China, um, but spent the first eight years of my childhood in Macau, um, which is a tiny little island. It used to be colonized by Portugal, uh, close to Hong Kong. Uh, as well. Um, and then I lived in New Zealand in a city called Christchurch in the South Island for six years. Um, and then I was about 14 years old uh, when we moved to Bahrain, which is another tiny island in the Middle East, very close to Saudi Arabia. Um, lived there for the rest of my high school years, then moved back to New Zealand, uh, this time in the North Island in Auckland. So spent uh, my university years there, then went to London for a couple of years for work experience and then um, went back to Bahrain to work for a few years. And then I met my husband uh, whilst I was living in Bahrain and moved to the UK. So that's where I'm currently based now. Oh, awesome. And uh, where are your parents from? So my parents are Egyptian um, and they are, you know, born, they were born in Egypt, grew up in Egypt. Um, and I think it was only when my sisters were about three and four, they moved across to Macau so that's why I ended up, you know, when I was born by that point, I was, uh, I started my life in Macau. Oh, uh, right. Yeah, that's how they ended up there for just work, I think, work opportunities. Led yeah. them there. That's, that's awesome. That's such a great, like, string of countries under your belt as well. That's amazing. And um, do you have, like, a favorite place then that you ended up? Um, I get asked that a lot. And I find it really difficult to answer just because... I think I'll always have a really positive memory of Macau because it was where I spent my childhood years and I had a wonderful childhood. Um, I went to an international school. I remember never feeling like I was an outsider because of the fact that I had a, a classroom full of people from everywhere, like you name it, there was at least a representative from every continent at least. Um, and I think, yeah, just you know, never feeling like an outsider was a big deal. And I think I appreciated those feelings as I grew up more and more. Um, because as I grew up, I started to live in places that weren't so diverse. And I really started to be aware of my difference. 
Um, so yeah, I think in terms of favorites, I would always have to pick things about each country that I love, but I never can just say one place, um, you know, kind of tops it all. I think I'll always be slightly biased towards Macau just because of my childhood years. Um, but yeah, I love the nature of New Zealand. I love the warm weather in Bahrain. I love the fact that I've got family there as well. Um, you know, London, obviously a big city. You feel like you're just, you know, living the life whenever you go there. So it's just little bits of, of different places that I've lived make up um, some of my favorite things about each place, I think. Yeah, I think I think so too. I mean, I used to as a as a um, as a kid, or actually now even as an adult, I I I sort of think, well, if I had like a little bit from there, if I had our house from Poland, and then if I had actually the beaches from Colombia, like it would be just the perfect place. Um, because yeah, every little bit I suppose makes that experience so much more magical um, for all different sorts of reasons. Exactly. Yeah, and it's. It's also the things that you learn to value as well. Like I think as a child, I never really cared so much about like scenery or, you know, how pure the air was or things like that. But then as an adult, you really look back and you think, oh, I was actually spoiled living in a place like New Zealand. It was stunning. Everywhere you looked, it was just, you know, green and lush. And um, so, yeah, I think those those kinds of things change as you as you get older. Hmm. But yeah, little and things about the country. Definitely. And um, and as you were moving around, like how adaptable were you as a kid? Were you quite happy to like go with the flow or did you get find yourself getting attached to the places you already in, you were already in? That's a really interesting question because I still don't feel like I really knew what was going on when my parents told me that we were about to move country. Um, and that's obviously to do with the fact that I was young and didn't really appreciate the fact that... Um, you know, there was going to be a massive life change ahead of me. It just sounded exciting. So mm -hmm. I remember things like, um, you know, when I was in Macau, I did feel settled because it was all I ever knew. It was my first home, uh, quote, quote unquote home. Um, but when my parents were talking to us about the idea of moving to New Zealand, um, you know, you think, cool, like I'll make new friends, I'll go to a new school, I'll go to different places. You know, you think of all the cool sides of things as a child, all the things a child would. Um, but in actuality, like when I moved there, it was a very difficult adjustment. Um, so you can think about like, you know, a, a kid who was exposed to nothing but internationalness, um, a school that was uh, very much about unity and diversity. Um, it was one of its core principles. Um, and then moving to a tiny, tiny town in New Zealand where there was just nobody uh, other than just the, the New Zealanders themselves. And I was so different to everybody. My accent was different. My hair looked different. My sense of dress, you know, was different. Um, everything just stood out. Even the things I would take to lunch were so different. And um, that just as an eight-year-old can be really overwhelming. So I think I had to adapt um, in those scenarios because you do everything you can to fit in, especially as a kid, you know, even down to changing your accent. Um, and I wonder if that's ever something you've done before as well, like feeling the need to change your accent to like blend in with different groups of friends. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, there's a story my my dad tells of when he picked me up at school in Estonia. And in Estonia, I, I think I was only there until I was about seven years old. But with my international school friends, I'd have an American accent. And then as soon as my dad asked me a question because he's picking me up from school, I just turned around and had a full on English accent. And um, 
something I think I've said in the podcast before, when I got to school in the UK, there were still certain words that I'd have like an American twang on and, and kids used to pick it up. And so of course, as you can tell, I've gone the complete extreme. I'm not, I'm not even near an American accent anymore, but um, I still find I do it. I went to visit some friends in Washington, I think about five years ago now, four or five years ago. And all of a sudden I found myself picking up the accent again. And my sister was nudging me just going, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you playing at? But it's uh, yeah, it's almost like the chameleon kid skills. They kick in all of a sudden. Yeah, hundred percent. You just, you start to be so hyper aware of all the things that you're not necessarily used to. And then you learn to apply that, whether it's phrases or words for things that you don't usually use. Like for example, swimsuits were togs in New Zealand and, um, you know, little things like that. I had to just be so aware of and remember to apply in my, in my conversations with people there. And that's been something that I've carried throughout each of the countries I've lived in. Um, Bahrain had the same similar, you know, feelings of like, I need to know certain keywords so that I can get along with people and have conversations with people and just feel like I'm one of them. Um, so I think adaptability is definitely something I've learned along the way. And many third culture kids, I'm sure, um, have had to do this in different ways as well. Mm, yeah, it's definitely something you carry into your adult life, I think, as well, um, in terms of like, like, I find moving from like house to house quite easy like I but I mean <laughs> but I find also the longer I stay somewhere the harder it is for me now I think I don't know whether that's because I'm ready to put down roots somewhere or I don't know how you feel about that like when like the last time you moved how you felt about that change yeah I, it's an interesting relationship I have with like the idea of settling down somewhere because because we've grown up in all these different countries and they've all been for a few years I think my default is like, okay, where's next? Or, you know, there's a little bit of a ticking time bomb inside of me that just thinks, okay, well, you know, I gotta, I'm gonna make sure I'm not, you know, collecting too many things because I need to pack light for whenever I next move to this country. Or, you know, I don't wanna be living in a cluttered house because, you know, I don't wanna have a lot of junk to, to carry with me to the next place. But I think, yeah, I would agree with what you've said. As I've gotten older, the idea of settling down has become a lot more um, favorable. And I find it very exhausting to think about all the things that you have to do to adapt and restart a new life all over again. And I think in my 20s, especially my early 20s, to me, that wasn't such a big deal because, you know, I was single, free, um, you know, I wasn't tied to a job or anything. So it felt a lot more doable. But as I'm getting older, getting pets and, you know, living here with my husband, I think, you start to really appreciate where you are and to stop seeing things as the grass is being greener on the other side all the time. Cause I think that's something that living in many countries, you tend to fall into this way of thinking that, Oh, this country had it better, or it was nicer when I lived here or the weather was better here. And you're always comparing, but nowhere is perfect. I don't know. Do you ever feel that way about like the places you've lived? Do you, do you feel quite sentimental? Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. I definitely feel sentimental and nostalgic towards certain places. And but I think, yeah, I think it also works. Um, uh, what you've described, also looking forward, because if things aren't going well at the moment, you could always think, oh well, well, I'll, I'll move at some point, and then I won't have to worry about this, or like the house will be different, or the job will be different, and the situation will be fine, and uh, the weather will be different. Like that's always <laughs> something we worry about, don't we? Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I think it's. Uh, there's, 
I, I still find myself thinking like, this isn't permanent. My situation right now isn't permanent. Like this is just a, a phase. It will change. Um, like this too shall pass, you know? Um, but I, I don't know, sometimes at the moment, especially during this pandemic, it's really hit me hard that like, no, I don't want this to be the permanent still or like, cause I can't change anything. I have to sort of adapt to that as well and, and, and like ground down. Um, and uh, I don't know how you've adapted to, have, has it been hard for you not being able to travel at the moment? Yeah, very. I think especially over the Christmas period, as, as it's been a challenge for most people, um, it's been especially difficult for, for myself because I hardly see my family. We're, we're scattered all over the world. Um, I've got sisters in Australia and New Zealand and a brother there as well. I've got parents in Bahrain um, and I'm here in the UK. So we always try and plan ahead and we think about the Christmas holidays as like the best time where everyone can take time off and find either a middle way, like we find a country that's a midpoint for everybody, or we'll just go to a country where somebody is. Um, so this year it was especially hard to not have that to look forward to. And I think there's like a bit of an itch, isn't there? Like with third culture kids, you feel at home when you are traveling, like it's such a weird feeling, but when you are exploring a new place, trying different foods, immersing yourself in different cultures, you know, looking at new sites, you just feel like, because you've had to do that all your life, when you're doing it more, you feel like you're finding a little piece of yourself somehow. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. And yeah, I think not traveling has been really difficult to, to accept um, and to just kind of see that it's not all about booking the next trip. It's actually just being grateful for the time that you were able to travel freely, but also realizing that this isn't forever and travel isn't <laughs> hopefully going to be a, a thing of the past. It will come back. It's just a matter of time now. Yeah. I think that's uh yeah, it, it's very stressful and, and anxiety for me, it's given me anxiety because I'm the same, like we've got family all over the place and like grandparents getting older and they're abroad and that sort of thing. So it's, uh, it's been quite challenging, I think. And, um, I feel personally like I've taken it for granted that we were so able to move freely and, um, and now it's just been brought to a standstill. But um, uh, yeah, I wanted to ask you, so like, um, tell me more about Bahrain. I've never been. Um, my grandfather actually used to work there for quite some time, but he never really talked about the place so much. He was a professor of English, I think, at a university um, somewhere. And um, But yes, tell me more about it. Like, what's it like? What's the thing to do there? What's the best thing about Bahrain? Sure. I mean, there are a lot of amazing things about that country. Um, first of all, it's a tiny little island and it's in the Persian Gulf. So very close to Saudi Arabia and Dubai. You can actually drive uh, to Saudi Arabia from Bahrain. There's a bridge there. Um, and it's very warm most of the year. You are going to be driving down roads in Bahrain, which are palm tree filled. Um, so the minute you get there, you just feel like you're on holiday mode, even though you might live there, you still feel like it's a very relaxing kind of holiday vibe um, yeah, kind of place. And um, it's, it's a very friendly country, I would say. Um, people there are very friendly, very open, very warm. And uh, there are there's kind of a, like two sides to it, I would say. There's like the really kind of glitzy, glamorous side where you've got these skyscrapers and amazing shopping malls that have everything you could have ever dreamed of. It's almost like a mini Dubai in a sense. But then you've also got the other side of Bahrain where you've got the kind of old markets, the things that are very um, 
authentic, like the streets, uh, street food markets, for example, um, and uh, lots of different uh, patterned uh, lamps and lanterns and carpets and perfumes. There's uh, oud perfume markets as well. So it's just there's there's that side of it where you can kind of feel like you've gone back 50 years, but then you can also feel like you're in the most advanced city <laughs> that you've been in for a while. So it's got those um, got those kind of contrasts within it. But I would also say they're very famous for dates and pearls, um, apparently because of the water. Um, Bahrain actually translates to two seas in Arabic and that describes the salty sea and the sweet sea. So that's apparently the best environment for pearls to to be created in. And that's why they are very famous for some of the best pearls um, that are sourced from the sea. And yeah, I, I mean, it's a great place to eat. There's so many places to eat. That's probably one of the things you do when you're there. Um, well, now you're speaking to my heart here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's honestly, if you love food, you're going to love the food there. Um, and there's lots of hotels, lots of beaches, swimming pools. Um, and I would just say it's overall a great place to go. If you've never been to the Middle East, it's a great first place to, to explore and check out. Oh my um, goodness. Definitely. You've p- painted such a beautiful picture. I'm sure everyone listening right now is adding it to their list. Like that sounds gorgeous. What we all need right now. Absolutely. Yeah. You can, you can imagine how I feel in the middle of winter here in the UK, just daydreaming of going back in the sun and <laughs> being there with good food and good friends and family, but definitely a place to go. Yes. To so when you were, so usually, um, you know, when there isn't a pandemic and you're able to see your family over the winter holidays, um, would you go and would everyone sort of congregate in Bahrain then, or would you go to Australia or what's the situation? Yeah. So that one kind of ends up happening that decision is made based on what life events are happening in people's lives. So for example, um, when we were all mobile and able to travel, yes, we would go to Bahrain because it was just an easy place to stay. It was my parents' house that we'd all stay in, you know, done. But then as my sister is starting to have children and them, you know, having to live so far away from the rest of us, it started to become us that would go there. Um, so it just depended on people's life events, I think. So um, the past few reunions have been in New Zealand because my sister had her baby and she got married a few years after, sorry, a few years before then. And then the previous one to that was um, in Bahrain. So it's just based on people's circumstances, we make the decision, um, you know, on, on where to meet up. So I'm really curious to know where we're going to meet up in 2021. Hopefully, fingers crossed, things are back to normal. Um, but we also like to try and find middle points. So, you know, it's kind of fair on everyone to to make that that trip um, and see each other and hopefully explore a new place together. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Definitely. Because, yeah, you guys really are so spread out like across the globe. Um, but that's a great opportunity as well, I think. Yeah. To, yeah. Like you say, explore some somewhere new altogether and create the sort of family memories that you're all so used to by this point as well. Um yeah. And I wonder as well, like with all the places you've lived, like what's your relationship with language now? Um, do you speak a few or is it, do you have like just, you know, a couple of main languages? Yeah. Um, so as a child, I went to uh, that international school in Macau called School of the Nations and we were taught English and Mandarin. <laughs> and so I was learning both languages, uh, you know, equally 
well. Um, but the main language that I was taking on my other courses in was English. So I would say that English became my mother tongue, even mm -hmm. though I still have moments where I say things wrong or, you know, don't, don't use the right words for things, but that comes with being a TCK. And, um, and then because I grew up in an Egyptian family, uh, my parents would speak Arabic. So I think my parents told me that when I was up, to, I think it was up to the age of two, I was actually speaking to them in Arabic as well. So I'd understand and speak. But because we started going to this international school and I became stronger in English, it became easier to express myself in English. And my parents found it easier to communicate with me as well. So that led to me having an understanding of Arabic, but not necessarily feeling very confident in speaking or reading and writing. Um, but then when I moved to Bahrain as a teenager, I was able to take like a beginner's course in Arabic. And I think because I had that understanding of the language, it made it a lot easier to learn the things like the alphabet or the words uh, that I'd be learning in that curriculum. So my relationship with languages is that I've always felt guilty for not speaking Arabic because I should technically, um, because I'm Egyptian, but I'm also you know someone who's never lived there. Um, I should speak Mandarin. I tried to revive it in university, but if you don't practice it, you lose it. Um, and my English is just never perfect. So I just feel like I'm trying my best to get by with the languages I do have up my sleeve. Um, but yeah, I think it's one of those things where I'm trying to, you know, get out of my kind of comfort zone when, when it is at, when I'm speaking to someone in Arabic, I, I try to like, just get over the fact that I might say something silly and, just, just do it to hopefully feel like um, I've got a second language or at least, you know, make it seem like I, I've got a second language on my list, but I kind of don't. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, though, that's the thing though, isn't it? It's getting over that initial sort of hurdle of being like, okay, I will probably say something wrong at some point. Like I have that a lot with my... Um, uh, my German family, my mum's German. And uh, every time I go, because they don't speak any English. So every time I have to like gear myself up, I'm like, right, you can do this. It's fine. They're your family. They'll love you no matter what. But sometimes I'm like, Jesus, Sophia, come on. Like, <laughs> you've got to be able to, you know, do this a bit better. But it's like you say, it's like, if you don't practice it, then, you know, it will suffer a little bit. And, um, but, you know, it's all about having a go, I suppose, just having a good old go and seeing where it takes you. <laughs> Definitely. And I was going to ask you as well, like, was part of it because your parents would maybe be like, oh, or like, you know, kind of make it a little bit cutesy when you did try and you did like mess up? Because for me, that was the case. And I think that put me off a little bit. Yeah, actually, I think so. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I think it might, maybe it was sort of like a little, yeah, making it cutesy or, or, um, you know, just straight away saying, oh, no, 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 it's actually like this. And I'm like, oh, maybe I'll just, I'll just shut up then. It's fine. I'll just be quiet. <laughs> I'll speak to English. <laughs> yeah. Because um, I'm not, I'm sure obviously it comes from a, a good place. They want you to express yourself correctly or, you know, make yourself understood. But at the same time, when you're a kid, you're just like, oh, okay, then never mind. <laughs> exactly. Gotta go do something else instead. <laughs> so true. Yeah. So when you meet up with your family then now, are you, do you guys all speak English together or is it sort of a, a mix of all the different languages? Yeah, mostly we speak English. Um, my parents might speak to us in Arabic still. Depends on the mood or depends on the topic that we're talking about, I guess. You know, if it's something more kind of serious, maybe they'll speak in Arabic, who knows. Um, but I think because we've, um, 
we do have some knowledge of Arabic. Sometimes my sisters and I will just speak Arabic when we want to kind of have code language between us, uh, when we want to say things that we don't want other, other people to understand. So it comes handy, comes in handy in those situations. But yeah, predominantly we speak English. My brother, though, I have to say, has been able to keep the Arabic language. And I think a lot of that had to do with him growing up in Bahrain. So um, my brother and I have about a nine-year age gap between us. So he's nine years younger than me. And uh, at that time we were living in Bahrain. So he went to school and learned Arabic just like he would English. And uh, my parents were like, we're not going to do the same mistake with all three of you girls. We're going to keep speaking to you in Arabic and you're going to have the language. So he's probably the the success story in my family when it comes to languages. <laughs> it's always the way, isn't it, with the younger siblings? They, they try it out on the older ones and then they're like, okay, the, the last one, we're going to nail it. They're going to be perfect. It's going to be fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll correct all the mistakes with the other ones. We'll get this one right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. This one won't be an experiment. Because uh, <laughs> I wonder, like, do you ever feel, like, I definitely feel this, but with my languages, um, and also because I, I also have Spanish family as well, I feel like sometimes a bit guilty for not being able to connect with them in that sort of a way. Or like, uh, I know bits of the cultures, of course, and like, I know my family and I know little bits of the language. And But um, do you ever feel like that in terms of like your connection with perhaps Egypt as well? Um, like, yeah, the guilt of not not having that sort of connection. Absolutely. I think that is probably the, the culture that I feel the most... Um, imposter syndrome with because when I go to Egypt people look at me and I look Egyptian and expect me to speak the language fluently and you know when I'd visit relatives there as well um, I used to feel really guilty that I couldn't speak to them properly because they wouldn't necessarily be able to speak in English um, and I think there was also this like feeling of are you denying your roots? Like, do you think you're better? Like, do you think that you're just, you know, Westernized now and you're dropping your Egyptian identity because you've, you know, you haven't lived here before? Like, I felt really like uh, cast out sometimes. And I felt so triggered whenever somebody would ask me, why don't you speak Arabic? And I've only recently been able to feel comfortable with being asked that question because I, I always wanted to understand like, why, what is it that is triggering me when I'm being asked this? Like, is it, the guilt or is it the fact that like what's it to you like you don't know the life I've lived I've, I've had to struggle through all these countries and you know pretend that I'm Egyptian but I'm not um but I think like it's just about realizing that you yes you're Egyptian by ethnicity and through some of the culture that your parents have introduced to you and exposed you to but to speak the language it's never too late and it's never too um it's never like something that you can never try to um, immerse yourself in. So, for example, if I am now in Egypt, I, I will try my best. And I think that really is appreciated by the people there, because even though I can't speak it fluently, at least I'm making that effort and speaking the language. But it's also just being OK with the fact that you aren't you aren't born and bred there. You know, it's it's OK to not speak that language. And you're not just any Egyptian person because you've had to speak English for most of the countries that you've lived in. And that's the language that you're comfortable in. And that's just who I am. And that's okay. Um, but yeah, I hundred percent feel the sense of guilt and I've had to really work through some of these feelings that would come up whenever people would ask me why I didn't speak the language to this day. But I think I'm managing a lot better than I used to a few years ago. Um, what about you? What, what would you say like with the languages that? Well, post 
Yeah, I think, well, I was going to say about the way that you're sort of um, taking the time to observe how it's making you feel when you're asked those questions, I think is really important to like take note and register that. And, and um, perhaps I should practice some of that as well, because I think, I think I do feel that sometimes, like I always get a bit nervous. Like if I'm like, even just if I'm asked to call one of my grandparents and, and I can't, I always think to gear myself up and I have to get ready for it. And um, it's always like a, yeah, it's a nervous sort of thing for me, but um, yeah, I think, I think I do feel that, yeah, I probably need to examine that as well and have a little look. Why is it making me feel that way? And, and yeah, it's never too late to learn. I mean, the irony of course, is that my mother's a German teacher. Um, but I think um, I'm sort of resisting having her as a teacher right now. Um, and I'd have thought actually of, you know, doing, you know, German courses separate from that. Um, but it's always the fear that she might find out and then she might think, why are you, why are you doing that? Why are you not asking me for help? But, um, but yes, hopefully she might be able to hear that as well. She's just on the other side of the door. Um, so don't tell her, will you? Um, don't worry. Um, but yeah, I think, I think, yeah, I feel a bit sort of, I do feel a bit guilty. I mean, my older sister is fantastic at languages and she's, she's just, she's got one of those brains that just picks it up and she just learns languages for, for, you know, shits and giggles. She has a great time doing it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think at some point I need to hold some accountability as well and just sort of take it into stride. Um, as you are, you know, I think you're, you're, you're doing a great thing and I should probably, I'll take a leaf from your book for sure. Oh. <laughs> But when you were growing up and moving around all these different places, like as a as a teenager, as a young person, how did you find it like making friends as you as you went? Did you find it easier or like as you went on or yeah, what were your relationships like? Yeah, I think um, I guess I could start off with my friendship experience just in Macau. Um, I felt like because I was so young and it was the first place that I'd lived in making friends was quite easy because everybody was in that same boat. You know, we all started school young. We all just kind of made do with each other as friends. And that was that. Um, and then when I moved to New Zealand, um, I kind of touched on this a little earlier. I came from this international school environment uh, to a very small town uh, in New Zealand, in the South Island. And I was literally the only non-Kiwi person. Um, and making friends in that stage of my life as an eight-year-old was very difficult. Um, and, you know, this isn't an assumption about New Zealand, New Zealanders. They are absolutely wonderful people and very friendly. But I think just as children, sometimes we're not very aware or sensitive of the kinds of things we might say to people that we're not used to. So there's obviously this element of fear if somebody looks different to you or sounds different or, you know, it's, it's unknown to you. And as children, you know, they're still navigating uh, what it means to have friends from different countries. And if they've not been exposed to that, then that's going to be something weird to them. So I, I ended up becoming a little bit of a, a victim of bullying, but, you know, nothing physical. It was just very verbal. Um, people would call me all kinds of names and people didn't want to play with me because I just kind of stood out a little bit. Um, and I then became very shy as a person. So I came from being quite confident and that really changed my personality into being very shy, very um, self-conscious, very uh, like over, over aware and very hypersensitive to just feeling different. Um, and I think that really affected me maybe in the first year or two in my primary school. 
Um, but then as I started to adapt and start to feel like I could make one or two friends that I trusted and, and liked me back, um, I, I began to build that confidence again. And I think like it was just the fact that I ended up being in a school that wasn't used to different people. So I'm not kind of blaming anybody. It's just the fact that as human beings, we tend to automatically have fear of things that we aren't familiar with. It's it's probably just a natural response we have. And I think that really affected how um, I perceived myself that like on like from that point onwards, like even when I went to Bahrain, I then had to make friends as a teenager. So I kind of carried a little bit of that trauma into that space because I felt like, oh God, here we go again. I'm going to be this different person and everybody's going to stay away from me because I'm new and I'm weird and whatever. But actually it was strange because when I went to Bahrain, it was an international school, which helped. But the fact that I was Egyptian made me less of an outsider because even though Bahrain is in Egypt, it's still a Middle Eastern country. So I was familiar with some of the Arabic that people were talking um, and also just didn't look as different. Um, a lot of my friends in that school were quite westernized. So it didn't feel too difficult. It took me maybe like another year to make some really good friends. But I think also the fact that I was older and I was able to feel like I was one of them, um, both physically and with language made a big difference. Um, and then when I went to New, like I went to New Zealand after, so I'd, I kind of went there as an adult, you know, for university. So that was fine. I ne never had any issues with friends, but I think since that experience in New Zealand, it's just helped me um, just be kind of compassionate rather than like blame people for, for casting people out. I think it's just understanding why people might respond that way because I, I was quite bitter about it for a few years of my life, but then as I've come to grow up, I just think, well, if people aren't aware and people aren't exposed to it, then you can't really blame them for it. It's just about awareness and education and, you know, learning to appreciate all people from all walks of life, from every country and, and just seeing each other as humans and not so focused on how different we are or how different we might look or sound to each other. Yeah. I mean, I wonder how you, how you feel now about your story and like how you go about like trusting people with your, with your life or like, not with your life. <laughs> That's a bit dramatic, Sophia. Um, I mean, like trusting people with your, with your stories and how, yeah, how you go about negotiating that in your adult life, because I know with the, for a lot of TCKs, especially, you know, you've got the short, short answer to like, where are you from? And then you've got the long answer. So yeah, I just wonder how you, how you go about deciding who gets to know the full story and who doesn't? Yeah, really good question. Um, I feel like I can always tell by the tone of the question. So sometimes you kind of get asked the question in a really like curious way, like, oh, like, where are you from? And usually then I'm kind of like, okay, this person's got time and, you know, they're probably willing to listen to my long spiel. So I'll go for it. But then you also get questions where people are just overly curious for no reason. They're just like, they almost feel like they have the right to know, or like they almost make you feel like you have to justify why you have an American accent or like, why did you live in that country for so long? And then that's when I usually like to give the short answer. Cause I'm like, you know what? None of your business. I'm never going to talk to you again. You don't need to know this information. Like it's not your right. Um, so I've had experiences where I've just told people something completely wrong. Like, 
um, you know, just for the fun of it. And it's, it's, it's given me some laughable moments, I have to say. Um, and sometimes I just tell people I'm Chinese because I was born in Beijing. So I love to confuse people uh, if, if I feel like they're just asking to be annoying. Um, but yeah. I love that. I love that. You're just like, I'm just going to throw that out there and let you figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you want to keep asking me questions, it's going to make you look weird. So, <laughs> so yeah, I've had my fun, fun moments with that. But I think, yeah, if people feel like, you know, they're really curious, they have the time of day to listen to my story and there's probably going to be some sort of a friendship or relationship that will come from this. Sure. I'm happy to share that story with them. But other than that, I don't really, I don't really have time for people who just feel like it's their right to know where I have to justify, you know, who I am and, and where I'm from. Yeah. I mean, fair, fair enough as well. Um, because sometimes it's, it can be such an effort. And, um, I, uh, I think, uh, I think it was Isabel Neve who I had on the podcast. Um, she summed it up quite nicely. And I think it's the clip I used on Instagram as well. She was like, um, when you get to university, everyone gets to say like where they're from and a fun fact. And then where you're from becomes the fun fact. You're like, well, where do I go from here? And you have to sort of go into it. And it's... Um, because, yeah, I think I, I feel really protective of it now. Like, I I mean, I say that now I'm putting this all on the internet, but I used to feel really like either ashamed or sort of it was like my sort of my secret that I, I didn't tell everyone or if I did maybe it wasn't um I just throw it out there just be like oh yeah like when I lived in Colombia I'd do this and that and the other and people go oh oh okay <laughs> and um but I'd move on quickly so like no questions could be asked you know um but uh yeah it's an interesting one especially if you're like around I mean how do you find it now living in uh do you, you're living in York did you say Yes. Yeah. I live here in York. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a, I mean, I've only been there once for a, a, a university open day many years ago. Um, but uh, yeah, I wonder like, um, yeah, how did you end up there and, and how do you find it living there as a, as a global nomad? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a lovely city and I understand why people are always like, oh, you're so lucky. You live in York. It's such a beautiful city. Um, it's very charming and very quaint. I think it's like the quintessential like British city. Um, if, if I was to choose a city, it would be York. Um, that would get, get that title. Um, and I ended up here because I married um, someone who is working in York or who was working in York at the time. So um, it just made sense for us to, to move here. And um, we've also got a community of friends. Um, I'm a Baha'i, like my religious uh, faith community is a Baha'i, is the Baha'i faith. So um, we thought it would be a great uh, community to help and support and develop. And so I guess like my experience moving here was very much, um, I guess like initially it was difficult because I was in a, I guess some people think that the UK is London and I think I was part of that that crew. I just thought, okay, living in the UK is just going to be like living in London. I've done it before, but it's very different. Many different parts of England are so different to each other. And in York, it is um, predominantly white, but you also have a big student population as well. So I think that that part of it made me initially feel like I didn't fit in again. And I started to get these like feelings again, coming back to me from where I, when I lived in New Zealand, I was like, oh, here we go again. I'm going to stand out. My accent's going to confuse people. People aren't, aren't going to understand me, but actually it's not been that bad at all. 
um, it's obviously a lot colder here. So in that sense, it can be difficult to adjust because I'm just such a child of the sun. But um, it is it is definitely a city that I think has potential and um, has taught me to appreciate a slower pace of life as well and to just, you know, um, get involved with the local community and not kind of live in those big city kind of temporary, I don't know, I just feel like big cities sometimes feel really temporary and you never really like fully engage in the community life of it. Um, whereas my experience in York has really taught me to really like be interested in and make local friends and understand what lo the locals do and where the locals go. And um, that's been really nice. So yeah, that's how I've ended up here uh, personally, but yeah, who, who knows where's next? It could be somewhere else and it could be here for the next 10 years. I don't, I don't <laughs> Oh. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the, that's the thing. I mean, uh, I know exactly what you mean, though, about like, not like getting involved with community things at first because you're a constant, in a constant state of like finding the next new thing, the next challenge, the next move. Um, so, uh, yeah, because for me, when I was living in London, um, it was the longest I'd ever lived anywhere. It was like seven years. Um, and al although I was moving from like flat to flat all the time, it was, uh, it was interesting because... I, all of a sudden I knew like all the street names, like I, I could actually direct people. Like if they asked me, if they stopped me on the street, cause I'm afraid I've got one of those faces. People ask me for those directions <laughs> and the amount of times I could not answer them, like in Poland, especially at people that I was Polish. And I'd be like, I am so sorry. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but then um, in London, all of a sudden I was like, yeah, I, I know where that is. I, and I, I know where the, like, for my, my favorite bars were or my favorite place to hang out and parks and that sort of thing. And, and um, I grew really attached and now I'm, I'm in a very quiet place now where I'm living. So I had to sort of, although I came here, um, not expected to stay here this long. Now I'm finding that sort of same thing again. And, and it's kind of, it's kind of nice to be a part of a community, but also, I don't know, I always feel a bit like, um, like I'm not completely rooted yet. I don't know if you feel that way in York or. Yeah, I really, I can, I connected what you've just said. Like as much as you can try to um, be as one with the local population, you're still, I feel there's this itch that we have. Um, there's never going to be that place where you just feel entirely, you know, at home. I, I personally don't think I ever will find that. And it's really trying to let go of that expectation that I'll be happy when, or I'll feel like I've got a home when, or, you know, I don't, I, I think that that's a very unrealistic expectation to have. And I think it's something that TCKs have romanticized a lot uh, because we haven't had that experience and maybe we see that those people who have had that experience as settled or having a home or, you know, a place that they've grown up in, we, we think that that's meet like meeting a goal or I've finally found who I am because I connect with this place. But actually no matter where we go, there's always going to be a feeling of displacement, whether you are from one country and you've lived there all your life or whether you've jotted around from different places, mm -hmm. you know, places so I think yeah like I I will never 100% feel like I am okay in York like I will always be sentimental I will always think about the places that I've lived in in the past but I guess that's why we travel so much because it helps us feel like little pieces of ourselves come back again because being in one place for too long I think can also just make you miss out on a lot of things mm -hmm. um, so it's it's nice to feel like travel is um, one way in which we can 
get that spark back um, and also to appreciate where we live and all the great things that that we have here. Because I'm sure in a few years time, we'll look back at where we are now and think, oh, so nice living in this place in New York or, you know, um, and just, yeah, getting nostalgic all over again. So yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, I found myself now because there isn't much change happening. I found myself changing things that I can control. So like, my hair's been different colors, like four different colors in the past five months. Like I'm already thinking about tearing down things in my room, moving furniture around. Like I, I find I, I, whatever I can control, I'm going to try and do something because I, I find I, otherwise I'm going to go mad. I think I might just go mad. Or maybe it's just my family that's driving me mad, but that, that's a whole <laughs> other podcast, I'm sure. Um, but I don't know. Have you found yourself doing anything like that during these lockdown times or have you been, managed to keep yourself quite busy? Yeah, I I mean, I definitely resonated with what you said about this lack of control. Like, I feel like everything I wanted just didn't go my way. And I think a lot of people in 2020 have felt that way, whether it's been work, I don't know, family or travel, holidays, things like that. Um, And yeah, I think one thing that I tend to do because it is that feeling of this is in my control is just get really into cleaning or like DIYing my house. Um, so I got very into like organizing, like I, you know, reorganized our drawers and did the whole like Marie Kondo thing. I don't know if you've watched Marie Kondo on Netflix, but just sorted out all the stuff that we didn't have, like what the stuff that we weren't using. Um, I just made sure that the house was always like spick and span and, you know, laundry was done on time. I didn't want to have like a load. So that helped me. And I think, cause I was also kind of using it as like an act of relaxation. I, I'm not really someone who can just sit on a couch and relax. Like I like to be active as I relax. And I think that's to do with a lot of anxious feelings as well. I think it was my way of managing the anxiety. I couldn't sit still with it. It was just do something with your hands and, you know, feel like you're doing something productive and feel like you're making something happen. So um, I found that cleaning and organizing was like my go-to and also going on Etsy or Amazon and looking at things that I could beautify my house with and yeah, little touches like that. So hundred percent agree. Lockdown has made me feel like I could control little things. And those were the kinds of things that I, that I attached to. Oh my God. I mean, lockdown one turned me into an Etsy fiend. I was on that. I hadn't even visited the website before and now I'm like I'm buying everything from there and it's it's not doing good things for my my really out of control knitting habit right now as well it's just all the things I'm buying all the things from there right now yeah. Oh my God. What have you knit? Like, do you, what, what have you recently knit? Well, my speciality, I will tell you, is um, bubble hats. I will knit bubble hats for anybody. Literally, if you would like one, you let me know. Let me know what colours you like. I'll get you one. Don't you worry. Um, but yeah, bubble hats, scarves. I'm hoping to start doing uh, socks at some point. But then I, I reckon by the time I get round to that, it'll probably be spring and then I'll have to wait until next winter. But um but yeah, it's really got me thinking like, also during this time, I'm like trying to think in order to get myself busy. I'm like trying to think thriftily. I'm like, should I start like my own Etsy shop? Maybe I should do this or maybe I should do that. But then also I'm, I'm a woman of many ideas and very little follow through. But uh, so we'll see to be continued. Stay tuned. Um, but uh, oh, I did want to ask you, though, I think you have your own shop, don't you? I do. Yes. So that was actually one of the things that came out of 2020, um, which was a positive uh, for me because I always sat on the idea of starting up my own e-commerce or website, e-shop, whatever you want to call it. And um, 
obviously with having more time on my hands, you know, not needing to walk or drive to work, um, you know, being at home a lot, um, not being able to do things on the weekend, it just allowed me that time to really think about what was that passion project I wanted to set up. And that's where the global nomad started. So I think because I worked in fashion uh, and beauty in my earlier kind of career years, I was always interested in the creative side of things. Like I loved the fact that, you know, in my past job, I would be able to create campaigns and like get involved in photo shoots. And I loved like looking at new collections from different designers. And um, that part of me kind of died a little bit with my job here because I, it's, I'm not really working in a very creative job. I'm working with tech and um, it's very kind of black and white and it didn't allow me to, to really, you know, exercise that side of me that was just screaming uh, inside. So I thought about why, why not start up something that is authentic to me, which is being a third culture kid. I can't talk about it enough. You know, it's something that when I came across the term, it was so reassuring and so, um, so promising to know that I wasn't the only person experiencing these things. There's actually a world of people out there that have had very similar experiences. And I thought to fuse the two together, my passion for fashion and creativity and, you know, my, my kind of um, feelings about being a third culture kid and just fuse them together and hopefully create something fun, create something that, you know, people can connect to and relate to. Um, and yeah, I started, started the globalnomadco.com. That's very exciting for you. I'm so pleased for you. What a great project as well, fusing all the things that you're so passionate about. That's amazing. Where can they find you? Yes. Um, so if you go on Instagram, you can find me um, at the global nomad underscore, or um, you can also just go straight to the website called the global nomad And um, you can find a selection of t-shirts, sweatshirts, jumpers, beanies, um, not bobble hats, but maybe one day um, and some stickers as well, some fun stickers. And I've also just recently done a really cool collaboration with um, a girl called Sylvia, also known as men.wayne uh, on Instagram. And we've, we've just come out with a little collection called the Cafe Collection. So it's really just talking about how as third culture kids, we're never really feeling like we're quite enough of anything. And this logo or this design is called or in arabic it translates to enough you are enough ah oh, wasn't she delightful what a charming charming person and please be sure to check out global nomad co and follow the company on all the socials i'll put it in the show notes here for you as well so you're able to find it with ease and it was so great chatting to her i mean i hope we can meet up in person sometime soon I mean, doesn't look likely in the near future, um, maybe in the next few years. I don't know. Hopefully we can try and organise something soon. And um, please make sure you rate, review, like, comment, subscribe to Acast and SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. And if you want to keep up to date with all things floaters, give us a like on Instagram. No, they don't say that, do they? They say give us a follow follow us on Instagram and then you can like all the other stuff on there. So it's at floaters underscore podcasts and um, there's nothing left to say 
other than thank you to Adora for your help for graphics and uh, thank you to Aral for your sound help. Please, guys, check out his website. He is superb at doing all the soundy bits. Um, it is aralbar.com. And thank you to you, dear, dear listener. I hope you're doing well wherever you are during all this craziness. And I will see you next time. Until then, bye-bye.